0: Sometimes the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. Welcome to the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 96. Well, we are rapidly approaching our 100th episode, which is absolutely incredible, but we aren't there quite yet. Got a few more to go, and I'm very excited to bring you more episodes each and every week here at the Back of the Range. Can't thank you all enough for the support I've received since returning home from the Walker Cup. Apparently, you want me to do more videos. I'll see what I can do about that. But in all seriousness, the growth of this podcast has exceeded all expectations, So let's keep it going. Before I get to this week's episode, let's do a couple Mojo updates. Congrats to Cole Hammer and Andy Ogletree. They will be representing Team USA at the Spirit International Amateur Golf Championships in November. So good luck to those guys. Walker Cup teammates. Let's see if they can keep it rolling for Team USA. Congrats to Stuart Hagestad. Had a great run at the U.S. Mid-Am. Made it all the way to the semifinals. Uh, Get used to seeing him in future U.S. Mid-Am's. For many years to come. Also, a lot of my friends made it onto Team Florida. That team has been announced in the Southeast Challenge matches. They'll be facing off against Georgia and Alabama. Five of the 12 men on that team have been previous guests on the back of the range, so congrats to the entire team, especially Scott Turner, Chip Brooke, Mark Dahl, Mike Finster, and Steve Carter. If you'd like to follow those matches, head over to fsga.org. And finally, Congrats to Isaiah Salinda and Akshay Batia. They are making their professional debuts at the Safeway Open on the PGA Tour this weekend. So all the best to them. As you might have noticed, we still have lots of giveaways that we're going to do. I was able to give away some ball markers and towels from the Walker Cup, which I think that everyone enjoyed. I actually have some more stuff lying around that I'm going to get out very soon. I'm actually going out of town again for a bachelor party golf weekend in Vegas Yes, I will try and make it back in one piece. So you're going to see a lot of posts on Instagram. I'm going to try and pick up some souvenirs here and there from the different courses we're going to play. So keep following along on social media, especially Instagram. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. All that information, as you know, is available in the show notes of this episode. If you get confused, if you want to go to one spot to get all this information, go to our website, thebackoftherange.com. Reviews, reviews, reviews. Keep leaving them in Apple podcasts. Tell me what you think about these episodes. Who do you want me to interview next? What tournament do you want me to attend next? Remember, if you don't tell me what you want, I can't deliver it. So get involved in this podcast. Let me know what you'd like to see in the future. Remember, we have those towels and hats for sale on the website. If you enjoy the podcast and you want to support the back of the range, pick up some merch for you and a friend to wear on the golf course. When someone asks you, what's the back of the Range Golf Podcast? Well, now you can start a conversation and spread the word. That's how this thing works. So, our guest this week was also at Hoylake for the Walker Cup, watching the U.S. team come from behind to capture the win. While I'm sure he was rooting for all the guys in the American squad, he probably paid a little more attention to the Stanford seniors, Brandon Wu and Isaiah Salinda, that helped lead the Cardinal to the national championship. This week's guest is Stanford men's golf coach Conrad Ray. Before leading the Cardinal to two national championships, the first one being in 2007, and before his stint on the Corn Ferry Tour and his appearance in the 2005 U.S. Open, he played collegiately at Stanford and was part of that 1994 national championship team that contained Nota Begay, Casey Martin, and Tiger Woods. Conrad is also the host of Golf U on Sirius XM which is the only show dedicated to college golf on the PGA tour radio network. We spoke about his coaching philosophy, some of the lighter moments of his career and a few highlights from the magical run of last season that resulted in a national championship. So let's get to it. Coach. I am sorry. I missed you at the Walker cup. We were both kind of busy enjoying that, but I'm glad I was able to capture you here at the back of the range. How are you?
1: Great to be with you. Thanks, Ben. Yeah. Fun, to, fun to, Talk a little college golf and, uh, and yeah, that trip to the Walker cup was something special for all of us here at the Stanford program. For sure.
0: I bet, you know, I, I got to talk to, to Brandon Wu and Isaiah Salinda before you guys kind of went on your run in the spring and then got to catch up with them a little bit before the Walker cup, since they were on that short list to, to make the team at Hoy Lake, walk me through just your, your days leading up to traveling over to Hoy Lake. When, when did you make the decision? I I'm assuming you made the decision to go over there right after they got named to the team. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, uh, I, I've got three girls at home and, uh, a pretty demanding teenager schedule of soccer games and tournaments and stuff. And believe it or not, I was, I had to miss my, uh, my wedding anniversary. So my wife, thank God is a Saint and that's she a, understood
0: that's a bold play so, coach. That's a bold move.
1: Yeah, it was a bold move. I'm still trying to earn my way out of the doghouse. Um, but you know, it, uh, it's all good. I, I booked the ticket in pretty short notice actually, uh, just with the fall season coming at us and um, was able to recruit my dad, Gary, who's a g- great college golf fan. And, and, uh, you know, has been there every step of the way as we've recruited these guys to Stanford and has gotten to know their families. So my dad decided who's retired and a golf nut, he decided to hop on a plane from the Midwest. And, and then he recruited my brother-in-law who played college golf. And so we got off the plane in in uh, Manchester and had a couple yeah. days of uh, golf ourselves on the front end. Um, where we, we had a chance to play um uh, get up to litham uh which was a which is an amazing place. Um we played Fairhaven and Formby and then made our way down to the matches and it was just a really fun four or five days of golf on the Lancashire coast, uh both playing and watching. And uh, you know, it was cool too to turn up. I, I would say that if you are a, a true golf nerd or a golf nut, uh a Walker Cup on foreign soil is about as good as it gets. Um I think that the appreciation for those matches is something that really uh, struck me. Uh, you know, the locals of Hoy Lake turned out, walking in the fairways, being right up close and personal to the action. Um, it was just a, an extraordinary uh, situation at Royal Liverpool, and um, I guess maybe made a little bit better by the U.S. coming out on top for the first time, I think, since 2007. Um, and so, uh, you know, proud of our guys and, and cool that they had a strong contribution to the U.S. effort.
0: Yeah, it was it was really incredible experience for me. And then, you know, seeing uh, Brandon and Isaiah, and then actually, yet you, you have one of your uh, seniors this year, Henry Shemp was uh, was there in tow, walking the fairways. I got to meet him, so he's coming back for for his senior season. Were you nervous for the guys as they were playing this this final, you know, putting this final chapter together of their amateur careers? Were you nervous for them, or were you able to kind of relax and enjoy the atmosphere, knowing that? You know, hey, this is this is on them. This isn't a Stanford event. What what were kind of your emotions walking
1: and, and watching their final matches? I was having a blast. I mean, I, I actually wasn't very nervous at all. I got I got a little nervous, uh, you know. Frankly, watching a few of them get re- you know, prepare. Like it was funny. My emotions were really relaxed, and I was like, taking in the matches and enjoying. Because a lot of the kids that were on the GB&I side are kids that we see, sure, uh, and compete against and have relationships with as well. Um, but you know, like for example, uh, watching Isaiah Selinda warm up for his match, uh, going into Sunday singles. Um, I mean, he couldn't hit the broad side of a barn, you know, his ball was curving all over the place. So it was like, I was really chomping at the bit from the gallery rope, trying to get his attention and maybe have a chat with him and give him a couple thoughts on, you know, what I've seen him, you know, do over the course of time and maybe help him a little bit. But other than that, other than that small moment, I was pretty relaxed and just trying to take it all in and, um, you know, enjoy some food from the food trucks. And, uh, you know, just, just, <laughs> I, you know I, like, I
0: found those too Yeah.
1: Yeah. We, you know, yeah, we were, we started the woo chant, which, uh, seemed to be infectious, even amongst the locals after a couple sideways looks from a, a, a few astute, uh, RNA members walking the fairways with their double breasted sport coats on, of um,
0: course
1: you know, beyond that, uh, the woo chant took hold and, and was warranted as he played really well. So, you know, those were kind of some of the things that were going on for me. I, I just enjoyed the whole thing. And, um, you know, especially, too, that's such a course that from your first glance, you don't really appreciate how special of a place Hoylake is. But as you walk the grounds and you see some of the shot uh, shot demands and, and imagine it, the U, I think the U.S. squad got lucky with no wind. Um, oh, absolutely. Uh, but, you know, you think about how narrow some of those fairways are and uh you know add another 20 miles an hour of coastal breeze that that place could really grow some teeth so anyway it was a it was a cool uh, couple of days for me um and just being over there uh you know with with two guys and their families that i really care about and my own family there is pretty neat um i i definitely checked a box off uh off the bucket list that's for sure
0: yeah i um yeah i, I was an amazing experience and and I can't wait to, uh, to get to the next Walker cup in, in 2021 down here in South Florida, a little bit of an easier commute for me. Um, we'll, we'll get to that, but I, I wanted to, you know, we're talking about Wu and Celinda, you know, they're heading off to the pro ranks. Now I, I want to reflect and kind of look back a little bit at your professional career. You know, you, you played for Stanford, you know, you're part of the national championship team in, in, in 94, you know, you know, get out of there at 97. And then it looks like you, you've Take over the the reign, so to speak, at Stanford in the 04 05 season. Um, can you fill in the gap a little bit between when you played professionally and then how you got into coaching in, in 04?
1: Yeah, no, I, um, my story is unique, I think. Uh, I was, uh, you know, going back a little bit, I was a recruited walk on uh, here at Stanford. I was lucky because, in some senses, uh, you know, unfortunate for the person that didn't get in, but Coach Goodwin had an extra spot. His plan was originally in my class to not really do a bunch of heavy recruiting, knowing that Tiger was already verbally committed to Stanford and he had a good chance of getting in in the following year. Um, but he missed on a candidate through admission, uh, through the early read, and I think he was kind of on the sideline trying to decide if he was even going to take anyone. And I was just pest, uh, pestering him enough, I think, for him to say, hey, if you can get into school uh, and get your SAT score up. And, you know, I'll give you a, I'll give you a walk on spot. I might ask you to shag balls and clean the van and, you know, carry some luggage, but, uh, you know, that's all I needed to hear. And so for me, I I was lucky enough to do that and then had this really fun experience as definitely not the best player on the team, but a guy that was willing to work hard and, and learn a lot. My game got a lot better while I was at Stanford and watching some of those great all Americans go at it and had a good couple final years of college and, Ended up, uh, you know, having a respectful college career. Um, I I decided to turn pro. Uh, I ended up hanging my hat down in Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, which today I'm still, it's one of my favorite all-time places. Have a ton of great friends there. Um, And I, I, it was just a place where I could call home base as I was traveling around the Southeast, mostly playing the mini tours and trying to qualify out on the, out onto the web.com Hogan, Hogan tour for a year and out on the web.com. And, uh, that's really where I focused my attention. I had, um, uh, some limited status out there over the course of, you know, five or six years, uh, conditional card, a couple years. Um, actually my best year was a year I didn't have status. I think I either Monday qualified or top 25 into 11 or 12 events uh, during that season. Um, and, and then all of a sudden in 2000, uh, I get this call, like, as you mentioned in 2003, 2004. And I was I was cruising away. I actually just got a sponsor's exemption into the event in Minnesota, my home state, uh, on the web.com tour. And um, uh, I had a conversation with the athletic director out here. And uh, at the time, he was running the search, one of the associates. And he said, hey, you know, you do us a favor if you just put your name on the list. We need a new golf coach. We want to find someone with Stanford Connections. And uh, would you take a flight out and just reconnect and maybe go through the interview process? Because you're we've talked to some of your old teammates who are out on the PGA tour and your name keeps popping up. And I said, well, yeah, they're doing a lot better playing than I am. I might (laughs) as well check this out. Um, and, uh, at the time Noda and Casey had his card and Tiger was out there and, and, uh, and Joel Crivel, you know, so all these guys are out on the tour. And I think, uh, for me, I was flattered that that happened. I was kind of a, you know, I didn't really, I wasn't really working at it if you were, you know, if you say that, but, uh, I, um, I was just like, yeah, I'll, I'll come out and interview. And I was lucky enough to reconnect with our athletic director and a few key supporters and our, our AD at the time. Uh, who's a wonderful guy, Ted Leland. Um, you know, he wasn't a golf guy, but he did, he did wonderful, you know, he's really good at finding, finding good people, I think, and understood that you, you know, the culture of Stanford is unique and special. And so he, he basically, after that interview process, offered me the job uh, definitely experienced, uh, based on the coaching side. It was I was a rookie. I didn't even know what the NC two A manual was, but I told him, "Give me a year. You can pay me what you want, and if we don't get better, you can fire me." You know, I was like, "Hey, I can always go back and play." So it's almost and like you
0: took the same—not to catch up, but it's almost like, It's almost like you took the same approach to coaching at Stanford as you did playing at Stanford. Like, look, I'll clean the van. I'll I'll shag balls, or I'll do this. You know, just get me in the door.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think that. I, I think I, I've always kind of been one of those guys, you know, I'm luckily my, my parents, you know, raised me that way, but I, I do think that, you know, you, you just get, you know, a finite number of opportunities. So you got to go for it, you know? And I, I try and preach that to my team now, you know, it's, it's, you got to sometimes put your, put your ego, your cur you know, you got to muster your courage or whatever it is to get there. And for me, I was just like, Hey, this is a cool opportunity. And I, I was, smart enough to look at the position and say, Hey, this job at Stanford might not open up for the next 30 or 40 years. And it's my alma mater. And so I was like, well, give me a shot. We'll see what happens. And then I was, uh, again, love, feel very fortunate, but I had some great guys on the team that I inherited some wonderful guys that just needed a little shot in the arm, some confidence, some belief in themselves. Um, and, and really someone too that have really celebrated this idea. And that's what we hang our hat on here is that, you know school uh, and golf and high level achievement in both are not mutually exclusive. You know that's really what our mantra is. and And I'm like, guys, like there's no excuse that you can't look yourself in the mirror and, and and expect not expect to be a first team all conference player and be at Stanford. you know but there was definitely a mindset when I took over the program, I think for a little bit that 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 uh, that combination is a hard one to make or it, it, you can't make it. And I think it's actually opposite. Um, I think that that challenge that our guys face for the right guys is something that spurs them on to success. So, um, so that was our that's that's kind of been my my mantra from the beginning. And we just dove in. And um, you know, a, a great young recruit named Rob Gruby showed up on the farm. He he was like third generation Stanford family, and he was looking at Wake and and, and Duke and a few places back east. He he actually went to Robert Louis Stevenson School in Monterey. And, uh, it's, it's quite ironic. My senior year roommate uh, fraternity brother, uh, the, small world connection used to tell me about this kid when we were on the team, this kid growing up in Hillsdale, Hinsdale, Illinois named Rob Gruby, his, his cousin. And this kid is a pretty good junior player. And, you know, he really wanted to play at Stanford someday. And this is when I was on the team. Yeah. And so fast forward, here I am, Rob Gruby shows up as kind of our standout freshman, 14 ends up being a four-time all-american join uh zach miller was on that team had some time on the pga tour um and then joseph bramlett uh shows up uh and and jordan cox show up kind of as my first big recruiting class that i was in charge of uh, a year or so later and uh so then that's what led to this group that we put together that was able to go and and, uh, be successful and win the national championship in 2007 so even though those those that was a three short year period from when I started to when we won, I feel like those those uh, things were already kind of in the works and and I definitely benefited from all that as a coach. So that's a quick uh, quick story of it all.
0: Yeah, I, well, it's just it's so fascinating because you think about you know now you know fast forward I guess you know you're entering your 16th I believe your 16th season at Stanford and you know, we, there's all the all Americans and the PAC 12 players of the year and, and the scholar athletes and all, all the, the accolades that go with it. But, but when you look back at, at what you were like as a coach in 04, 05, or even let's just call it 07, when you win the national championship to compare it to now in 2019, I mean, looking back at that guy in 2007, just kind of trying to figure it out as he goes, can you think back to some of the maybe the rookie coach mistakes you might've made or the, the, the head scratchers that you can look at. I mean, not to throw you completely yeah. under the team van here, but you know uh, there's gotta be one thing that maybe stands out like, man, I can't believe I did that.
1: Yeah. You know, I was pretty hardcore from the beginning. I, I've, I've definitely softened in terms of my um, you know, just my understanding that, every guy does it a little different. I had kind of one notion in my mind of how it should look and how you should do it. Okay. And I was pretty vocal about that. And I, I think it was, I was fortunate because uh, some guys on the team needed some of that direction and structure. And so, you know, I was, I was pretty hard on the guys early on whether that's um, you know, the fitness levels that we try and achieve, whether that's the amount of volume of practice Um you know, and, and we also, I had, I had uh, some good advice along the way. You know, I, I, I remember early on in my coaching career um, I connected or reconnected with an old friend named Neil Smith, who has had some time out on the PGA tour and is kind of a performance coach, uh, sports psychologist, if you will. And, you know, one of the things I used as kind of the Bible was his development model. Um, and it was, I think it was a precursor to. What, what you see every PGA tour pro doing today. And that's really taking a holistic approach to development. And so I, I, I leaned on that and leaned on him hard. You know, we focused on what we could control and, and, we, and not what we, we couldn't control, you know? And, and I think at a place like Stanford, where a lot of it is results based and oriented, uh, that was refreshing for our guys, that we were really gonna measure ourselves by how hard we worked, how much we, we handled our own business not really by what scores we shot, and I think that there was a there was a definite shift in kind of culture a little bit there, yeah. and it kind of you know I think it helped our guys who were in a spot of needing some time to get better, uh, to to be able to reward themselves for what they were doing. So, you know, I, I look back on my early coaching career, and, and a guy like Neil Smith, I I would have I would have been floundering, you know, trying to figure it out. But, you know, to that you know the other part of his um, his teaching, and and he's he's you know. Uh, put this together with work with other people as well, but he's got a model called the performance pie and, and, uh, his, his performance pie. And I still use it today is basically just a diagram that shows that, you know, it's, it's seven pieces to the pie. Uh, and, and those seven pieces all equal good golf. And in the center of that pie is a happy and healthy golfer, you know, and, and, uh, you know, whether it's swing mechanics, uh, rest and active relaxation, um, uh, nutrition, uh, equipment, uh, parental support, you know, all those things need to be in order for a good college player to to play their best sure. and, and a good pro. And, uh, you know, we, we, I didn't just go at these guys with, Hey guys, you're, you know, I mean, you can't hit a five iron on the green from 200. Like what the heck, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't going at them as that, that was in the back of my mind, but, right. um, I, I didn't, I didn't take the front of, frontal approach there. And so um, we just focused on those controllables and we still try and do that. And, and that was kind of the start, I think of how, you know, how I run the program and, and it helped me understand how to do it best.
0: I, I'm going to ask you about a, a five iron from 200 yards that was hit by uh, your freshman uh, to uh, Tilabuya. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you about that a little later, but um, before sure. I get to your national championship in, in 2019, how do you balance between you know being maybe the the boss of the of the team or the you know the leader of the team, and establishing you know boundaries, but also being have a little bit you know getting a little bit closer to the guys, being somewhat of a friend of a buddy that you can kind of pal around with. Like, how do you kind of balance a little bit of that? Because I know you can't just be sitting up on high as the un- unapproachable uh, uh, boss of, of the team. How do you find the connection?
1: Yeah, it is a, it is a uh, you know, a people person type of job. I think I've been, I, you know, I, I, one of the things that, um, that has been a big part of our program are the assistant coaches that I've had here over time. And, you know, we've had some guys cycle in, cycle out. Uh, I think that's driven uh, by a bunch of different reasons. You know, guys on the rise in their careers, uh, the, the uh, cost of living in the Bay Area, um, you know, just guys that are, I've made some hires kind of out of the box hires as assistant coaches, but I've done that really thoughtfully, or I think, or I've tried to, um, all these guys have brought different things to the table. And even if you look back at my first assistant coach, I hired a guy named Sam Purrier, who was running the Eastlake junior golf uh, program before it was taken over by the first tee. And, and, uh, you know, he came from a, such a different place than a lot of our guys did in terms of who was matriculating to stanford so
0: right.
1: sam's life experience uh you know and where he came from really added to i think our our uh, our group um you know and i was i was i'm proud of him i mean he he was the first african-american uh coach at the division one level um or at least at least the power five level that i'm aware of you know in a long long time and so you know, for him to then go on and be the head coach at Michigan State and, and have, you know, make his life work out of coaching golf it's a cool deal. And, uh, you know, so like Sam brought a lot, a lot of stuff to the table. And then we had guys that, you know, maybe have been alums of the program that have a perspective. This last cycle we had a guy named Matt Bordas who um, was, a, was a basically fresh out of the Marine Corps as a Special Forces team commander. So, you know, that, those assistants have been a big part of that connection with the team. Um, I've tried to make it my mission too to make a conscious effort to connect with every kid that I have here and not have that, you know, that, that door be that tough to get by or whatever. I'm, I'm smart enough. I think to know that I'm getting older every year. Um, and I need to, you know, I need to keep working hard at that because the kids stay the same age. And, uh, that also is true as I go through the buffet line at the, at the tournament too, you know, they. They're eating like 19-year-olds, and I, I need to eat like I, I, should, uh, I should be as a mid-40-year-old. So, um, you know, the, the point is, is that I think just having that connection with your players is really, really important, and the guys that I admire in the coaching ranks around the country um, are guys that do that really well. And, uh, and if you don't have that, it's difficult, you know, when you're in the heat of the battle uh, or you're in that moment when you can really make an impression or teach a lesson or give them something that will help them for a long, long time in their golf game um, or in life, you know, if you don't have that connection, you don't have those moments to share. So um, that's an important part, I think, about being a good college golf coach.
0: Well, I, I have to ask about, you know, I have to ask about 2019. As I said earlier, I spoke with Brandon and Isaiah. This was before, I believe, your Vegas event in March. And, Looking back after you know now that all that's transpired, you know, with with winning the national championship and all that success, but I actually went back and listened to that episode, and they didn't sound as chipper as they did, uh, you know, when I talked to them after the national championship. I guess that time around February, March, before that Vegas tournament where you guys turned uh, turned the yeah. corner and then won out, you know, they they kind of sounded a little bit down in the dumps. I think I remember them saying something like, "Well, you know, if we make it to regionals, you know," they weren't as maybe as, as um, uh, you know, optimistic about their, the way their senior season was going to wrap up. Um, that's how the players were. What were you going through around February, March, when things were not looking great? <laughs>
1: well, you know, it's funny. And then, because-
0: and then how do you, and then how do you, and I'm sorry. And then how do you like, how, what are you dealing with internally? And then how do you communicate the right message to your
1: team? Yeah. It's hard to communicate that. You know, I remember standing up at some function or fundraiser and telling like uh, a bunch of big time Stanford supporters that this is the worst best team I've ever had, you know? (laughs) And, you know, they're kind of looking at me like what's this guy saying, you know? And I I guess while I was trying to communicate was I, I really, and and I don't want to claim that I had a false sense of anything, but I really never doubted this team in, in a weird way. I knew that we had to figure out some stuff and I knew that, if we were going to be the best team that we could be, you needed to have all cylinders firing. And that's what we were able to get going. Um, you know, there, were, I used the stat, I think the stat, the stats basically support that in the fall, we played a very competitive schedule and there was there, there actually, I don't think that there was a single week where both Brandon uh, Wu and Isaiah Salinda finished both in the top 20 and uh, you know, they had their good weeks, but they also had some other weeks too. And uh, right. or event. And so, you know, for us, the, when the, both those guys started playing well, that's when it kind of really started, and they worked hard in the offseason. We did a lot of things team-related team, team related that I think uh, spurred that on, whether it was in the weight room or here on campus with our practice regimens that we maybe don't normally do. And, uh, and they got it going, which is really cool. And, and then all of a sudden you get guys like Henry Schimp and David Schneider and Dalet, uh, you know, uh, just tossing in rounds here and there that were huge rounds at the time. So I think people started getting the vibe of like, let's get, let's get on a roll. Let's try and make winning something that we're, we're used to. I really do think that winning is a habit in college golf, especially in the springtime. It's not, it's rare that you see a team not win in the regular season and then go make a, make a run at the national uh, finals. So, you know, we wanted to get on that early uh, in the new year and uh, they were able to do that. So, lot of things had to happen but i think probably the sum of the sum of the sum was that both those guys isaiah and brandon really started playing well at the same time
0: um the the thing with the national championship i want to ask you about i mean obviously you you get through the stroke play portion you you run through the matches so you run through the matches you you get through wake forest you get through vanderbilt and then obviously you beat texas you we won all three sessions three and two so could not have been any closer than that i believe i was watching a clip and just kind of seeing uh you know, during the semifinal match, you were out there with Gillette during his match where he won one up. And we talked about this, this five iron from, from 200. Um, <laughs> and he birdies the last yeah. hole. But I think it was mentioned that, you know, Coach Ray really was, was coaching hard these last couple of holes. Cause you were out there with him and I believe he lost, I think like, like four holes in a row or just he really kind of, he, he was kind of, uh, you know, the match was kind of getting away from him. And for, for people that want to know, like, okay, what does a college col- what does a college golf coach actually do? Like, okay, he recruits the team and gets them to the tournament, and he'll give a speech here and there. But once they get out there and they start playing, it's really on the players. Um, not asking you to take credit for anything, because he has to hit the shots and he has to make that putt. But what were you doing during those last few holes that someone could say, oh, yeah, that's that's what the coach just added to this
1: moment? Well, I think, I think um, I would back up a second and say, I actually think that the col- a good college golf coach, the ones I respect and look up to and try and emulate actually do have a lot of bearing on what their, how their team manages themselves around the course and the strategy involved and sure. the, the precursor to that. I think that that's, you know, I think that's where the games really evolved to, you know, because there were, there was a long period of time where a college golf coach was just the, just the van driver. But I think the guys that are winning today, try hard not to be that band driver, you know, the, but they, uh, um, you know, I guess to dig into that situation with dallet it was a culmination. I mean, it was a great shot. Don't get me wrong, but in no other circumstance, it's a shot he hits. He hits, you know, a couple times out of 10, but, but based on the circumstance, I think that's why I've said that that's one for the ages for our program, because of the fact that, you know, that the, the story of him caving in his driver on the first tee shot of that round, uh, him hanging in there, you know, trying to figure out all the the, the details about replacing a crack, you know, is it is a crack driver a damaged driver? I, I've learned a lesson there, you know, in the heat of the moment, right. you know, and that's kind of since come out on the PGA Tour a little bit. But uh, uh, anyway, Dolette battles the situation with his driver still playing great. He gets a four up lead and then the oil starts to leak, he, you know, as we say, kind of blew a tire in turn three. And uh so we're just trying to get to the house and I was with him with that and he was really asking me a lot of you know for a lot of information. I sometimes just am there to walk and encourage and, you know, hang out. But he really wanted some help and so we kind of were trying to get this this match in the in the books and, and uh you know, and then after you know, knowing his, his uh opponent dumping it in the river on seventeen, all he really had to do was hit it about forty-five to ninety degrees to the right and <laughs> keep it on dry land. He somehow hit his ball right in the river after his opponent, you know, and on 17, and then he has this crazy one-shot penalty, uh, you know, with his ball like two and a half inches onto the fringe. He nicks his ball with a practice stroke, yeah. so he had to outshot. shot um, and, and, you know, that's a crazy rule, right? I think if he's, uh, you know, on the green and that happens, it's no penalty.
0: Exactly right.
1: Uh, and- and it's just, it's, it's just so, so much stuff was going on and flying around. And we knew that that was the penultimate match, right? So for him to get up there with a, with a driver, he'd hit two other times ever in his life, hit it in the fairway and then have this shot at hand to, to be able to kind of close the match out was, was epic. And, uh, Um, so great shot, great putt. We all celebrate and the rest is history for sure.
0: Yeah. And the other thing that I noticed about that is because I watched that, I've seen that putt several times. I've seen the reaction of your team. And what I find interesting is when you see the guys celebrating in the Stanford shirts, it's not just the guys that were actually playing. You had additional players that were, um, you know, not in the starting lineup come down to Arkansas to watch this. Um, I believe it was actually for the finals, so they weren't there for Dillette, but but you had players come in just to be a part of it. I, I would imagine, yeah. I mean, I know winning, you're very proud of winning it, but I'd imagine you are you're have to be very proud of the fact that you have guys in your team that were not even playing that wanted to be a
1: part of it. Yeah, it was cool, and, and they surprised us, too. I mean, they they booked those tickets the day of on their own dime and got on a flight basically getting in at like one in the morning the night before in the forts into, um, uh, into Fayetteville rather. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it was so cool to see them turn up. They actually slept on the floor in Isaiah's room. And then all of a sudden I'm going to get the van at like 5:30 in the morning. And I see these guys roll out after a couple of two or three hours of sleep. And it was just the vibe of the whole thing. They, they were, they wanted to be there and be part of it. Um, and, you know, I think it, it, it didn't take much watching to see how strong the crowds were, kind of from Texas and Oklahoma sure. and, and the geographical draw. And, and that's something that, you know, you appreciate having a chance to see some of these national championship. Um, I, I always joke with Alan Bratton at Oklahoma state. I'm like, you know, uh, Mike Holder, the AD gives everyone off, you know, then the department the day off and maybe buys them a bus ticket. As far as I know, you know, it's like sure. it's amazing how the, the Cowboys travel to follow their golf team. And we felt that a little bit too with the, kind of the, you know, the proximity to Texas all week. And so, you know, for even if it was just two guys being really loud and raucous and friends of these guys that were out competing, it made a big difference. And, and uh, you know, the vibe was high and, and, and they were focused on doing everything that they could do to leave it out there and win a win title.
0: I think I asked coach Laura Ionello of Arizona last year, what the, uh, what, what the evening was like after winning their national championship. And, you know those those lady Wildcats are just they're really out there. They they took Ubers to McDonald's and got shakes and fries. So they they clearly out there on the West Coast are are, are are wild partiers. Um, I know you may have to I know you might have to clean it up maybe, but but tell me a little bit about what it was like that night.
1: Well, we had a lot of fun. We we it was a little bit of a Bonnie and Clyde moment because the storms came in. That was you know we played very early. Yeah, that's and I right. Think most people. Most people that were tuning in or had their DVR set on the Golf Channel to watch were surprised to find out when they turned it on that we were already almost done with the match. Yeah, but and and you know it was literally it, it's amazing um, how much we ask of our student athletes. I've always been a proponent. Proponent. I love the national championship, but it feels like being there a number of times. It feels like we're we've got like 20 pounds of flour and a 10 pound sack. You know, we just try and do so much and. These guys, have been you know, I I we kept track of our miles walked during the NC two A championship, and this is without elevation, and I hit eighty six miles. So you know, you think about that over the course of seven days, carrying your clubs, no sleep, you know, you're running on adrenaline. Um, but anyway, w- uh, we turn up that last day. We were fortunate to come out on top against a really talented Texas team, and we all knew it. And all of a sudden, the storms blow in, uh, massive rainstorms, and wind and everything. And I think half the media tent left and the, and the rest of the half that stuck around. We had a few questions, ate lunch and I get a call from, we were lucky enough to get a, a private flight back to uh, San Jose and the pilot called and said, Hey, you better get out here. We're not going to get out tonight. And so we literally in our team unis, um, threw the trophy in the van, you know, and, and we're flying down the highway to try and get to the airport to, to hit this window of time to, to be able to get out. And so, I mean, we were back on campus, uh, you know, almost by four or five in the afternoon. It was a wild day. Um, um, it was really quick. And, uh, we, we celebrated that night. I, I, we had a little bit of a, it was a, well, not a little bit a neat reception, a bunch of people in our athletic department turned up and welcomed us back along with our women's team. And, uh, we celebrated a little bit there, watched a little bit of the, the, the telecast that was still on. And, uh, um, and then who knows what the guys got into that night. Like, that's one of the coaching moments <laughs> you, where you, just, you don't need to yeah. know. You don't need to know. I don't need to know. No, no questions asked. I'm sure they had a great time. And, and, uh, and I know that it's, it was one that we were, we will still be celebrating for years to come. That's for sure.
0: That's great. Um, well, I, you know, you mentioned, I mean, it was such a, such a great experience there. You know, you, before I get on to maybe what you're going to be doing for the next, uh, you know, next or this year's team and then, you know, teams moving forward, I want to ask you this question, which doesn't seem to get uh, addressed often. You know, you have Brandon and Isaiah turning professional, and they're going to make their professional debuts. I'm just curious, and I think a lot of listeners would be curious. What is your involvement um, at the time where these seniors, or even if you know someone is leaving the team early, like Patrick Rogers did after his junior season? Um, you know what what is the interaction or involvement that you have to guide them from that? From the college ranks to the professional ranks, are you, uh, you know, advising them or helping them with with you know maybe equipment or, or schedules or picking an agent? You know, it seems now you see these kids in college, and then okay, now they're on tour and there's their deal, and there's it looks like it just happened seamlessly. Can you maybe speak to? how things like that occur, maybe not in particular detailed with Isaiah and Brandon, but just in general, maybe what your interaction has been over the years?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think that that's one of the hats that um, a lot of coaches wear. I, I'm not, I have no issue talking about it. I think that the, the, you know, the rules permit um, pr- prospective professionals to have conversations with agents prior to, their, to, the, to the end of their amateur career or their collegiate career. And so I, I take this stance that I'd like to be involved. I, you know, early on in the process, if a player of mine is expressing the desire to turn pro, or he thinks that there might be some opportunities to meet with managers, I'd rather be in the know than in the not. I right. think sometimes, sometimes agents and people in the in the professional ranks don't really understand the NC2A rules, so I'd rather be there advising and cautioning in them and that type of thing. And typically, what I've done with a lot of the guys is just offer up, um, you know, being a fly in the wall and someone that can give them kind of a third, third party opinion, you know, uh, non agnostic, you know, just like, uh, um, or agnostic, I guess. Um, so, you know, just like telling them that, Hey, this is what I see or hear. And I've se- seen a lot of these guys come pitch other players and talk about what services a management group might offer or what a, a club deal might look like, you know, those types of things. And I still have a lot of contacts personally from my days playing professionally. And it's amazing how small the golf circles and world is in terms of that. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's just a process. I, I really feel like also too, I I can be a grounding post to kind of, you know, it's easy. I think if you're a young guy and you have a bunch of people coming at you knocking on your door to get, to lose track of what really matters. And that's like, Hey, what you got to play well, you got to just do your own business and you want to almost feel like your professional career is a natural progression. It's what you should be doing versus what you want to do. And so, um, you know, it's, it's fascinating though. It's grown those conversations have grown more and more because of the young guys in the PGA Tour going out there and making such a quick splash so it's a serious conversation that goes on over the course of time I think for the guys that are doing it the right way and uh, but but for those guys in particular this year um, you know I was I was part of that conversation and basically we welcome in those those people that want to have conversations we do it at Stanford we do it in our conference room here you know and and they just come in and, and talk to the family and the player about what, what they're all about and why and uh, and try and start that relationship. But um, you're right, it is pretty seamless. There's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes before um, a player ultimately says, hey, I'm a professional and signs uh, an endorsement contract or calls himself a, a, you know, a, a, a player so or someone that's going to play for money rather. So um, it's been fun for me. I like that stuff. I okay. think that there is kind of this, this role, you know, some coaches don't really choose to be part of it at all. Um, And, and they don't think that that's their business, but I always tell my guys, I'm like, the minute you step on campus, you're going to be a Stanford golfer the rest of your career. And so I'd I'd rather have those guys really have those, those foundational blocks in a good spot and off to a good start uh, than have a guy floundering and curious or making a few false steps.
0: You mentioned, uh, you know, once they step on campus, Stanford, uh, you know, they're Stanford golfers for life. Uh, it, this this kind of just hit me. I, I remember uh, talking to Brandon about it and Isaiah how you know Stanford is so challenging and rewarding academically. It never really crossed their mind ever to leave early just because I've, I've worked so hard with this. I want to get my degree. Do you think you have an advantage at Stanford because of that reason? People, you know, kids that come there yeah, they want to compete and, and play athletics or play golf at the highest level, but I don't want to go through all that Stanford is going to ask of me just to not get my degree. I want to be there the whole time. Is that an advantage or do you feel that's an advantage for you?
1: Yeah, I, I don't, you know, I think it's something that we can definitely hang our hats on. I think the guy, if we're doing our, the right job in recruiting, that's something that the guys see and they understand and they're mature enough to see that, that the pro tour is not going anywhere. And and I always used to use the line, "Hey, you know, a degree from Stanford is like the ultimate insurance policy. Right. If golf doesn't work out, but you've been around, Ben, and I think everyone sees that. Um, you know, that being a professional golfer at the highest level these days requires um, a pretty high level of acumen in you know being surrounding yourself with good people, making tough decisions with limited information." Um, The work ethic that goes involved with that. I always also mention, you know, my good old friend and old teammate, you know, Tiger at his height, you think about the operation that he was in charge of, and still is, I mean, if that's not running a business, I don't know what is, right? So, um, uh, you know, so for me, it's both, you know, it's a great insurance policy, if you don't play professional golf, but if you want to be number one in the world, I think a Stanford degree will serve you well. So, Um, you know, it it does create, uh, for the right guy, a great way to talk about it and to draw people here. I think the, the evening out factor is that there's not many of those kids around the country or the world that ultimately can pass through the filter of admission and have the golf that we're looking for. So it's a kind of a self-selecting process. And, and I, I, I honest, you know, honest truth that there's literally probably only two to three kids a year in the entire world that have both of those check boxes. And so, you know, for us, we have to be good at, at finding those kids and then um, kind of capitalizing and making sure that they end up on campus.
0: You, you mentioned recruiting and I know you've done uh, shockingly, you've done other podcasts before you've done mine and it's, it's, it hurts, but, uh, um, <laughs> but you, you know, it's, it's seem- good though. okay, yeah. good, good. Well, you know, a question that I know you've been asked uh, the, the obligatory Tiger Woods question, and I've given it some thought of how I can ask a similar question to, you know, tell me a Tiger story. And, you know, I, I kind of want to ask this question. You know, you've had all these great alums. You've had, you know, you got, you know, Nota Begay and you got Cribal and Casey Martin and then Patrick Rogers, and of course, Tiger Woods. Um, I know that they come back to campus. So my question for you is this, have you ever had to pull one of these alums aside and say, look, I, I need you to be a little bit more of a role model here and kind of, you know, uh, be the adult here and less of you hanging out with these kids and reliving your college days. I mean, ha- have you had to maybe get something out of them? Like, this is why you're here. You're going to here to help me recruit, not to spend the weekend with college guys on the course, you know, yucking it
1: up. Have you ever had to had? Have- no, I, you know, I, I one of the things that underlines our program is having fun, you right. know, and I actually... If there's anything, I wish when those guys come back that they have more fun. You know, I I think that our place should be a welcoming place. And, uh, you know, all those guys that you mentioned are good guys and they like to have a good laugh. And, you know, obviously Tiger's in that bucket. I think that's one of the things that um, doesn't get talked about enough, actually, is Tiger's sense of humor. I think when that comes out, people really are drawn to him. Um, I, I always tell my one quick little Tiger story, and I thought about it recently when I was at the U.S. Amateur at Pinehurst. Um, I was I was uh, super lucky to get in as an alternate in the 2005 open and I bugged him he was playing great and was at the top of his game in fact he contended on Sunday and Michael Campbell ended up coming out on top but um, looking back early in that week um, on Monday morning he had texted me and said meet me for a 6 a.m. practice round and don't be late so I just come off the national championship and I my game was as rusty as it gets. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I tried all this time to get in the open, never played. And then ultimately get in my first year coaching as an alternate. So there you have it. And it's uh, I get there, you know, it's half dark out. I'm trying to hit balls and I'm pouring sweat. It's a hot, humid morning. And it's a true story. It's three balls to warm up. Now, granted, he probably got up at three o'clock and had worked out and done his commercial already, here, had some calls or whatever, but he, he hit a, a sand wedge right over the flag from a hundred yards. He hit a five iron off the, 200, uh, marker. I mean, just absolutely striped. And then a driver off the back range fence. Um, and he's like, okay, let's go. And my caddy's over getting coffee or doing something. And I'm like scrambling. Like I didn't even know, you know, what I was up to. Right. So he's driving to the first tee and we go down through this tunnel and walk out onto the first tee. And I kid you not, there were probably about 2000 people waiting for him that the, the the Sunday paper had basically let the word out that tiger was going to be practicing at 6.00 AM and everyone was going to try and beat the heat and you've probably been to Pinehurst and it's a golf hungry place mm-hmm. and so yeah that's um, that's
0: the worst I, possible I, situation for you right now i mean it's not like yeah, it's, yeah i am
1: it's, yeah it's all i am in the lions den at this stage you know and i walk out from this tunnel and i look at these people and i don't even know where the club face is and i i was as nervous as i've ever been in my entire life i mean i even even more nervous than my with my wife walking down the aisle and i was like oh my gosh this is going to i'm going to kill someone and so Tiger, to his credit, one of the funnier moments of the entire you know time there, he came over and he literally, so people could see, he grabbed me by the shirt collar. And he said, listen, he's talking quite loudly. And he said, hey, listen, all these people up here, they're here to watch me and they don't know who the hell you are. So there's no reason to be nervous. And the crowd erupted and we all had a good laugh and it broke the broke the ice a bit for me and I could take a breath and and I still had to yell four off the first tee. That's the funny part of it. I hit a big hook into the left gallery. So. Of course. Of anyway, course. there you have it. That's that's my uh that's my Tiger Woods funny story for the day. But he, he's got a great sense of humor. Um and and I love that about him. And and I think when uh, when that comes out, you know, people really enjoy it.
0: I know we have limited time. I appreciate you sharing that story. I, I was I was hoping for one, you know, like P- Patrick Rogers hanging out watching movies with the guys until three in the morning or something like that. But that's okay. <laughs> well, that that story that story works. So we have checked the box off. But I, I want to ask you, you know, you you also uh have your own radio show on Sirius XM channel ninety two. Uh it's golf you and you talk about all things college golf and um, you know, junior golf and amateur amateur, the amateur game and very passionate about it myself. And I'm just curious. I mean, there's plenty of topics we can get into and I know we have limited time, but what is one of the most popular questions maybe that you get from parents or juniors, uh, since you've started that radio show?
1: Well, I, I think what people really enjoy about the show and it leads to the questions that they ask is just really digging a little deep deeper into the philosophies of college golf coaches. And, how they approach developing their players and their team. I think, you know, we've we've kind of started to go down this road with the show of really golf performance. I think that's something that is kind of underserved in the space. I, you're not you're not underserved with swing instruction, swing tips, um, equipment, um, you know, PGA Tour highlights. You know, all those things are things if you're a golfer you like, but what we really have enjoyed is just this idea at a high level of, of golf performance. And the, and one of the best places to find it is in the college game because it's a pretty open source type of conversation. You know, you can get a college coach on there and they're going to tell you a lot about how they run their program or develop their players. You can get the players themselves on there. I mean, I remember interviewing Colin Morikawa a year ago after his, some success in the college ranks and asking him how he practices, what he focuses on yeah. what he thinks is important, you know, and, and you're not going to get that from a, you know, from a normal PGA tour press conference, you know? And uh, so for me, that's what I've loved about the show. And that's where the questions have mostly come from. Um, it's just that, you know, understanding how to, how to uh, perform the best on the course. It's not about how the swing looks. It's not about, you know, the, what it's like the, the how. And, uh, and so we, we try to focus on that and it, it, it definitely touches all the layers, both uh, at the amateur level, the college level, and then and down into juniors. Um and so I think that's what people have enjoyed most about the show. I'm still trying, to, it's interesting being on Sirius XM. It's a wonderful uh group and organization and we feel honored to be the only college show on a on a network that really focuses on the PGA tour. Um they don't really tell you how many people are listening, so it's good <laughs> that you're listening. <laughs> um, along with my mom and maybe a couple relatives back in the Midwest. So we've added to our list today, which is good. We're, but, gonna, uh, we're all
0: going to get t-shirts uh, made, so we'll send you yeah, one.
1: Yeah. I, I might send you, might send you a free hat or something. You nice. never know. So, um, but, but it's been cool. It's, it's hard to believe that we're, we're in our third year doing it. And I've got a great partner there, Kyle Gentry, who I tell people is, is uh, cooler than the other, other side of the pillow or, or the other one that, as he likes to say, could talk a dog off a meat wagon, you know, nice. so we're, We're, uh, you know, both, both those things are true and and he's been a great partner and does a lot of the research for the show. Actually, I just get to show up and, and ask questions and talk and connect with, uh, with some old friends around the, around the subject of college golf.
0: And how long have you been doing that?
1: Well, we're, we're almost three years now. So it's, uh, um, the, the backstory really quickly is that we, uh, there's a wonderful guy named Scott Greenstein who, um, has become a great friend through golf. He's a, he's a golf addict like we all are. And, um, and he was on campus one day and he very, very just randomly popped into my office and we struck up a conversation and he's in charge of all the content on Sirius XM. So the PGA tour network is, is near and dear to his heart and, uh, as a golfer. And so he, uh, basically said, Hey, have you ever considered doing a, doing a radio show? And I'm like, no, not at all. Um, never been short on words, but you know, I got a day job to worry about. And I said, I, I appreciate the, the the thought, but I probably am not going to pass. And, and he said, well, think about it. You know, you can pick your own host and kind of your own time slot in the evenings and make it convenient. And, uh, and so he called me back and I, I said, well, what, what the heck, you know, at the time I was, um, I was cycling through and it was a, it's a great organization, the college golf coaches association of America, the GCAA. Yep. I was cycling through as the president of that organization. And I was just thinking about ways how to promote college golf. And I said, wow, if this is right in front of me and I can spend an hour talking about college golf and growing the sport and giving back in some weird sort of way, I'm, I'm all in. So um, that's where it started. And I, I'm, I haven't really looked back and, and they haven't canceled our show. That's how we, t- that's, you know, that's how we say, kind of measure our success if we haven't gotten the the hook yet per se. So, um, it's all good.
0: No, that's uh, that sounds great. Well, I'm sure that's, it keeps you, uh, keeps you on, on top of all the topics. Um, I'm going to let you go, but I, I, um, and I need to close this out for you, but I just wanted to hit on one random topic. Now you, you started in 94. Uh, I'm sorry. You, you, you're, yeah, you you won the national championship in 94, you graduated yeah, I was, in 97. Yeah, I was a
1: freshman. Yeah, I was freshman in 93, won yep. the spring of 94 we won and uh yeah, finished in 97.
0: Yeah, and then but now fast forward, I wonder if you could tell me cuz we're all gearheads and we like, you know, anything new and shiny. So you know, you get the college bag and all that stuff, but I wonder if you could give me an idea of what was the bag and clothing that you received as a player at Stanford, as opposed to what these guys get now.
1: Oh my God. That's been a huge transition. Yeah. We were talking about that the other day. I mean, coach, uh, well, that there's two kind of, uh, there's a funny story around that, that I could share, but the, uh, basically it was like, a uh, you'd get a sleeve of balls per tournament. Okay. We had two or three shirts. Um, we had two or three pairs of pants and if they fit, they were, you were lucky. Um, my first year we had, uh, we, we carried ping bags, but that was when you had the wooden dowel. And
0: yes, um, I I I still uh, have one of those.
1: Yeah. After about two weeks, the, the, you know, the fate, the red Stanford bag would fade. Um, and so you, and, and it was, it was a day too where they hadn't changed the amateurism rules. So equipment all had to be purchased by the given program. You wouldn't just get a box from a manufacturer if you were a top kid. So, you know, the, the, the interesting part was there was incentive there to play well, because Wally definitely ran a Wally Goodwin, who's a Hall of Fame guy here, wonderful guy and a huge part of my golf life and just general life. Um, he's an awesome guy. And he, he basically, there was a vibe where you have better just have shot in the 60s if you were going to go ask him for anything. And so I think about that today sometimes when I got that kid that just rolls out a 76 and qualifying and he's coming to ask me for a new set of wedges, you know, but right, it's a different, exactly. it's a different animal today, you know? And so, um, you know, you had to earn everything you got. Um, and, and so that whole dynamic with equipment has really, really changed and how easy it is to come by and how much companies are spending on equipment. Um, you know, the, the quick story I was going to tell was, uh, I had, I always loved when Tiger would qualify for big events outside of his college career in my sophomore year. His freshman year, he played in the World Amateur right out of the gates, and I got to take his place. And uh, for some reason, we we were partnered with Bobby Jones at the time, and for some reason, Coach wanted to make sure my pants fit, and he ordered 44 waisted pants. And I and I'm like a 38, so oh, yeah. I show up in in Tokyo, Japan, wearing these wearing these 44s, and they were like cinched up with a piece of rope. And it was one of it was basically the the, the joke of the entire trip um, because I had these clothes that were looked like I was a quadruple extra large, trying to get around this hot, humid, hilly golf course and in, uh, in Fujikura, Japan. So. Nonetheless, I, a lot of fond memories, and and man alive, though things have changed with when it comes to equipment.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, uh, I I saw firsthand what the Walker Cup team had, and I just was like, this is borderline ridiculous. I mean, you guys look like fashion models. I mean, it was just it was crazy what they were wearing out there.
1: Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. It's it's changed a lot, and I, and I think it's you know it's it's cool because it just shows that um, people are paying attention. You know, oh, yeah. those people be, you know people wouldn't be given that free stuff out to the USGA or college programs if it didn't matter or have an impact. And, and that just tells me things are going the right direction for our sport for sure.
0: Well, coach, I do, I really do appreciate the time. I know you're getting ready for your first tournament of the fall, uh, looking to go back to back as, as I'm sure you were uh, eagerly anticipating another run at the national championship. Hopefully we can do it again sometime soon. And uh, thanks for stopping
1: by the back of the range. You bet. Great being with you today, man. Thanks for, thanks for the opportunity.
0: And there you have it. Special thanks to Coach Conrad Ray from Stanford for stopping by here at the back of the range. All the best to you, Coach and Stanford, trying to go back-to-back at the Belays later in the spring. Remember, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all the information you need on this podcast. And we'll see you again next week here at the back of the range.